Welcome to Your Strata Property, the podcast for property owners looking for reliable, accurate, and bite-sized information from an experienced and authoritative source. To access previous episodes and useful strata tips, go to www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. Hello and welcome. I'm Amanda Farmer and I have with me today Rena Van Alst. Hi, Rena. Hi, Amanda. How are you? I'm doing very well. Lovely to have you with us on the show. How have you been? Yeah, pretty good actually, yeah. I'm actually booked a holiday to go to Tasmania for a week, so I'm looking forward to that. Oh, fabulous. I love Tasmania. I was there two or three years ago. I think we did a little trip and I've always said I would love to go back, so good on you. Yeah, I've been there before, so it's my first time. Oh, wow, really? <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, enjoy. you have to tell us all about it when you get yeah. back. <laughs> all right, let's jump straight in. What's your uh, challenge for this week, Rena? Well, actually, this is an interesting one, Amanda. This is actually a retaining wall dispute between a luxury homeowner and a six-lot scheme where the retaining wall is actually starting to bulge forward from the home side where the home is actually located, the house, and it's actually bulging forward towards the driveway and garden of the strata scheme. Mm -hmm. And what's happened is that over many years, the previous owners of, of the house have actually done renovations and they've actually filled up the garden beds with extra soil and what's happened is in the eastern suburbs many of these retaining walls are built on sand they're sandstone walls built on sand so obviously they can't withstand the pressure and at the time when they were originally built they didn't have structural reinforcement sort of undertaken and the owner of the house has now said to the strata scheme well you know you're up 50 percent even though the majority of the retaining wall is actually on the boundary of the house and Mm. not the um, owners corporation Mm. and they referred um, the scheme to a case called Yared versus Glenhurst Gardens in 2002 Mm. where um, it says that even though the retaining wall may be owned by the adjoining property that if it needs repairing that the owner of the retaining wall can seek a contribution from the adjoining property who receives a benefit from the repair. But what the issue is in terms of the argument, well, what is fair and reasonable? What's a fair and reasonable contribution in this case? And obviously the courts haven't said it was 50%, but the adjoining owner has asked for 50% contribution. Mm. So at the moment, the Yards Corporation is engaged an engineer to look at the calculations upon which that um, amount was derived. And obviously Mm. the Yards Corporation is engaging its own lawyer to have a look at that as well in terms of that case. And yeah. Yeah, and so it's going to be quite an interesting case, Amanda, because the costs are quite high. Mm. And so in terms of what is fair and reasonable, I mean, if if it went to court, it would actually probably cost more than the the amount that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. um, It's one of those things that I think both sides have to come, you know, when you're neighbours, it's hard to have an acrimonious relationship moving forward. Yeah. So we're, we're trying to, you know, work with them and see what we can do that's obviously fair to both parties. Yeah, and the uh, the policy makers have recognised that when you do have these kinds of disputes between neighbours, it is in everybody's interest to try and resolve them without getting to yeah. the stage of a court. And I'm thinking of things like uh, dividing fences and there is a, a trees uh, disputes between Neighbours Act as well. And they set out quite helpfully clear guidelines for how to deal with those kinds of disputes, mm. including serving notices, um, going to a community justice centre for mediation. And the mm. whole process uh, tries very hard to keep you out of that stage of going to court because, as you said, Rena, it can be very expensive and the legal costs 
often outweighing the cost of what a, a new wall or a new retaining wall or whatever it is that you're having a dispute about would cost. Now, in your situation that you've just outlined, you say a retaining wall and is it sort of earth that is causing the damage to the wall or are there plantings that are on the other side? Yeah, there are plantings that have caused it. Okay. And there's actually a tree that's been there for many years whose roots have obviously caused the to start sort of rupturing in, in certain parts. But I think the fact that people may think, oh, that retaining wall is not on our boundary, we don't have to actually pay for it. I think this is a very rude awakening for anyone thinking, well, just because it's not on your boundary that you don't have to contribute. So yep. if you receive the benefit from it, According to these previous cases and the sections in the Conveyancing Act also that are referenced, that you do have to make a contribution. I think what is at stake here and what the issue relating to a potential dispute is, is the um, house owner has asked for 50% and therefore mm. for the owners corporation to offer a lesser amount, obviously they have to sort of put a position paper, so to speak, to say, well, this is mm. why we don't. Then hopefully there can be some sort of consensus upon where the two parties will meet. But all parties benefit from a wall that doesn't collapse. But one of the issues that we've taken to council is that, well, council's approved this number of DAs where this works have been done on the property and they've backfilled you know, mm. the, and made a new garden bed. And that obviously has put pressure. So in a sense, you know, where's council's responsibility in all of this where they just approved DAs and we actually wrote to them and they just pretty much, as we expected, just <laughs> ignored us and said, well, you know, and it's actually, um, sorry, I should have mentioned earlier that, that this is actually, council has imposed an order on that the wall be fixed as well. So there's a council order asking that the wall be fixed. So oh, okay. Yeah, so it's a council order that has to be complied with. Yep. This is why I love the world of strata because it seems like a narrow niche area and then here we are dealing with councils and defence disputes and retaining walls and engineers and dirt and I mm. just I think it's um part of the beauty of what we do that you never know what hat you're going to have on any given day and I deal with a lot of dividing fence disputes but yeah, I don't think this is actually not a dividing this no that's right yeah but yeah because it's a retaining wall which is another thing that um you know, I suppose initially they thought 50-50, but... Yeah, complicating um, but factor. it's not. <laughs> yeah. And again, not always between strata schemes. If there's a strata no, scheme involved, then that's how I get involved. But then you're often dealing with a private single landholder next door, mm. which is a, a different kettle of fish as well, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. All right. Well, keep us updated on that one, Rena. I am interested absolutely from a, a legal perspective as to where that fair and reasonable assessment comes down. Yeah. And I hope that your um, the building you're working with there can reduce that 50% and uh, yeah, come out well, on top. Yeah. I think the offer has already been put to them that it won't be 50%. So mm. let's see how far off and what will happen if they don't accept that percentage that's less than 50%, whatever that may turn out to be. Yep. Let us know. All right. Well, my challenge for this week, uh, this has actually come through a question from a listener and it arises from one of our earlier discussions, Rena. Um, I'm not sure if you remember, we had a chat about the power to convene an mm. extraordinary general meeting. And yes. we talked about the distinction between convening an annual general meeting and convening an extraordinary general meeting. And those who have the power to convene an extraordinary general meeting are actually quite narrow an extraordinary general meeting can be convened through a requisition from a lot owner and that requisition must be a qualified request. So they need to have at least 25% of the unit entitlement mm. backing them for that request or the EGM is convened by the secretary. 
And the listener who was hearing our discussion on that topic wrote in and said, well, can't the strata manager convene the EGM as well if they have the delegated authority to act in that position as secretary? And my answer was yes, absolutely. And I just wanted to bring that up again, Rena, so that if anyone else out there had that question arising from that Mm. discussion, that absolutely if your strata manager is delegated certain functions under the agency agreement, then they are well within their rights to exercise those functions and the strata manager could certainly convene an extraordinary general meeting in their capacity as secretary. Yes, that's correct. And also, obviously, there's a manager that's been appointed as a compulsory manager under Section 237. Obviously, they can come in an EGM at any time also because they have full delegated authority under the Act to yep. um, act as the owner's corporation in, in, in all circumstances. So, yeah, so I agree with that advice, Amanda, that mm. if your agency agreement is full delegation as opposed to partial delegation, and that full delegation includes all the functions of secretary, including calling a meeting not just restricted to certain things, and definitely the um, agent has done that. But I, I know agents that don't even have the full delegated authority and they just still call the meetings anyway. So <laughs> as I said to you, they were calling, the, I think in one of our previous podcasts, I mentioned that they were just calling EGMs to reappoint themselves at meetings without it having any authority to do so. That's right. Yeah, I think that was the episode where this question came up. And, of course, in the case of annual general meetings. Well, again, it, it depends on your delegated authority, Yeah, I would say, because um, under your agency agreement it says if you have full delegation or partial delegation. And I think the um, SCA agency agreement um, is an example where, you know, you can tick the various boxes, mm. whether you have full delegation or or as per instructions from the strata committee. So. Yep. I hope that clarifies things for any listeners who had some questions arising from that earlier discussion. And of course, if you've got more questions or anything else you would like Rena and I to cover off or to explain in more detail, do shoot me an email, amanda at yourstrataproperty.com.au. Let us know what you want to hear and we shall deliver. All right. Your win for the week, Rena. Shoot. Well, this is actually um, quite a recent event that occurred, Amanda. I had a scheme that I'm managing where a lot owner just moved in new and she wanted to do some renovations and she asked me what the procedure was and I advised her about the bylaws, et cetera, and I gave her an example of one that another owner had done just to give her an idea of what sort of parameters and conditions were necessary for inclusion in a bylaw that should be drafted by a lawyer, et cetera, and she said she had a, a lawyer she knew. But the second thing she asked me was, was there any asbestos in the building because she wanted to change the locks and apparently a, a local locksmith had told her that there was asbestos in the building. Anyway, because it's only a new skin that I've just taken on board, I went through the records and I found an asbestos report that's been completed by one of the two major companies that have been doing them. And so I provided that report to her, which said that there wasn't any asbestos. And lo and behold, you know, I get all these emails and calls saying that notices are being put up around the building saying that they're coming to remove asbestos, you know, the next week. And it was at the instigation of this subject lot owner. And so now I've written to her. She hasn't responded anyway. And then I just rang the contractor and said, basically, he was referring to the ceiling that he was going to remove some asbestos from the ceiling. Uh, he it was a vermiculite ceiling. And I just rang him and said that, you know, that's common property. You really can't be touching that without the consent of the Owners Corporation. And he just said, okay, Reno, I understand you're right. I shouldn't be doing this. It's between the Arts Corporation and the lot owner now, you know. Mm. Thank you very much. And I thought, mm. wow. I thought, how do you so obliging so quickly? Yeah, I like him. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I thought, I'll be using you again then because, you know, <laughs> even though I've, I've never met him before, I've never yeah. heard of his company. But I thought, well, he's obviously taken on board our concerns. And, of, mm. of course, you can imagine that, 
in the notice you included the fact that there'll be, you know, dust around and you need mm. to make sure that you don't. I'm thinking, and people are just getting so scared. Yeah. So oh, anyway, that, that so we're word. obviously going to undertake some testing ourselves that the Ants Corporation will engage him or someone else. But the yes. point is I wonder these reports that people have been obtaining now for mm. some time. You know, like, are they worth the paper they're written on? If a person's coming to do work on the ceiling and they were told there was no asbestos and now someone else is saying that there is, well, how do contractors know when they're, you know, and we need to make sure that the workplace is safe and free mm. from hazards. So, yeah, I just think that's something that we need to look into. I think owners' corporations generally and these yep. companies that are providing these asbestos reports, Amanda, I mean, I'm not sure, like, yep. if the testing has been adequately conducted. Yeah, that's right. It's one of those tricky areas. You say the word asbestos in the same way that you say fire safety and general panic ensues. And often, at least in my experience, it's not always warranted. And we do have this difficulty now um, where our legislation requires us to provide a safe workplace and then, of course, the strata legislation which requires us to have work health and safety reports prepared and even your capital works fund plan dealing Mm. with, looking into and dealing with these issues. There are a lot of contractors out there who are providing stock standard service, if you like, for a flat fee. And they, well, I don't know how, they can comprehensively and accurately cover all areas. And so you are getting some conflicting advice sometimes that, yes, there's Mm. a problem in this area, whether it's to do with asbestos or um, some other building defect or fire safety item. And another so-called expert might tell you in the same situation that there isn't a problem. So what does the owner's corporation do? Well, I mean, any lawyer is going to tell you to act conservatively and uh, protect the interests of your owners and do the work that's recommended. But I know that it's um, frustrating for owners who suspect that there probably isn't a real risk and they're embarking on an expensive exercise of, for example, removing vermiculite ceilings. Mm. Well, yeah, on the matter you were mentioning before, man, about these sort of sinking fund or capital fund forecasts, I used to manage an award-meaning building previously and, and they received one of these sort of template proposals and the report even contained items that they didn't even have in the building because obviously, you know, we're using oh. a template and you might forget to <laughs> amend it. Oh, um, but it just shows really like I think that those corporations, I think there's an inherent requirement for them not to spend a lot of money and they don't want to spend money on, on getting a decent report. But on, on the other hand, they're not getting any value for the money that they're spending, whether it's a lot of money or a little bit of money because you just, if it's not a report that's have, yeah. has any value or, or any information that's pertaining to the building and, and is, is accurate in, in some form. Even I mean, I look at those plans as a guideline and not sort of a – Yes. Unless you've spent a lot of money where each piece of the plan and equipment has been, you know, like looked at and then therefore it's the rest of its useful life has been sort of calculated, Amanda, based on when it was installed and, you know, et cetera, then yeah. really – I just think that in this case, when you're dealing with asbestos, it's a bit different because it's not like, you know, there are, there's people's lives that are involved in safety and mm. um, and you know, I would hate that someone was doing work on a ceiling and then the next minute, you know, they by disturbing the asbestos, they actually, mm. you know, inhaled it or anything like that. Yeah, so sure. It's, it's quite a concern, I think, when this happens. Yeah, and it is the risk of regulating to the extent that we do our strata buildings and where you require all buildings to have a certain report prepared each year or uh, take certain steps to ensure safety, you do end up with this sort of box ticking Mm. process, which then results in businesses doing very well, assisting you to tick the boxes when that's all they're doing. And and 
as you say, it can really reduce the value of what you're getting mm. and leave the owner's corporation thinking, would we have been better off to, you know, regulate ourselves and mm. be wise to what needs to be done in the building rather than going and paying $500 for a report that then tells us we've got plant and equipment that we don't even have simply because we exactly. had to tick that box in the legislation. So, um, and it wasn't $500. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, <sure>. it was. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, not sure we have the solution for that one yet, Rena. But, um, of course, yeah, as I said, when you're dealing with asbestos, um, always best to act conservatively, especially if you're the strata manager giving advice. Um, yeah, I, so I, I think we'll be writing to the company on Monday now and asking them to please explain and maybe do some retesting if necessary. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, so something I wanted to bring to the attention of listeners is that the New South Wales government has produced an options paper on short-term letting. Now, I noticed this when I was overseas, and I'm not sure about you, Rena, but it seems to have flown a little under the radar. And I think we've got a a job to do here to bring this to the attention Mm. of our listeners and those in strata communities. This is essentially a, a booklet that New South Wales Fair Trading has put together. They call it officially an options paper. It, I think, came out at the end of July. And what they do in this booklet is set out some possible ways, they say, of dealing with short-term letting, not only in strata buildings, but generally in New South Wales, the practice of Airbnb and stays and the like. And they make some suggestions and they're calling for comments on those suggestions, comments from owners, residents, communities, stakeholders like lawyers, Airbnb themselves, and comments are due in by the 31st of October this year. So hopefully by the time this goes to air, you've still got some time if you want to have your say. And interestingly, a short summary of some of the potential options that the government's putting forward for dealing with short-term letting is to say we can have industry self-regulation so people can act according to a code of conduct. There can be some kind of monitoring and reporting. There can be an education program involved. Another option is for strata buildings to regulate the process through the strata law. So to have bylaws that are specific to short-term letting, bylaws where there's compensation that can be paid if there are adverse effects from short-term letting. Another option they say is for it to be regulated through the planning system. So through the councils, through consent having to obtain development consent to have short-term letting, having councils limit the length of stays and things like that. And another option is to have a registration system where if you are conducting short-term letting, then you have to register that somewhere and that helps to manage safety and amenity issues. That is just a broad brush that I'm really just drawing Mm. from the, the executive summary, but it is a fairly detailed paper I'll put a link to it in the show notes and you'll get that from the website yourstrataproperty.com.au and just find this week's episode and you'll have a link there. But anybody who has something to say about short-term letting in New South Wales should absolutely read this options paper and get your feedback into fair trading by the 31st of October. Now, am I right, Rena? Is this sort of why nobody's really talking about this? No, I, don't, I haven't really heard much about it actually, mm. Amanda. I mean, it doesn't mean that it hasn't been, but maybe perhaps it just hasn't come across my mm. radar recently, but there's been so much talk about Airbnb and the government sort of making, you know, various positions and then, sorry, not the government, the council and then 
Sydney, Sydney in particular and then changing their mind and mm. so it seems to be sort of obviously becoming, you know, an item that's sort of taking far more time to be yeah. decided in terms of, you know, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable and how the regulations should be formulated in the future. So hopefully um, if there's sufficient sort of advice from various stakeholders yeah, I think th- their thoughts and their positions. I think also the insurance industry should need probably needs to be involved because of, there's obviously insurance implications. Yeah, I mean buildings are used for purposes for which they're not actually regulated or allowed to have. So it's a big issue. Yeah, I think what the way I see it is that the government is taking this seriously. This paper essentially is the the fallout from the parliamentary assembly committee that was held in October 2016 and there was what was essentially a public inquiry into the adequacy of the regulation of short-term letting and a lot of recommendations were made, a lot of stakeholders were consulted. I know bodies like SCA and OCN were involved with that and this paper is designed to bring all of those recommendations together and put it out to the public and and call for some written submissions. So I think that's great. I think it's a a good step um, in addressing a, a serious issue, not not jumping to making legislation, which is what we thought towards the end of last year might happen, that we just suddenly have the short-term letting bill, but taking the time to get input from all affected parties. So, yeah, um, yeah jump in. Don't forget to have your say. That's a great positive step. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much as always, Rena, and uh, I shall look forward to chatting to you next time. Okay. Take care, Amanda. Bye. I will. Bye. Thank you for listening to Your Strata Property, the podcast which consistently delivers to property owners reliable and accurate information about their strata property. You can access all the information below this episode via the show notes at www.yourstrataproperty.com.au. You can also ask questions in the comments section, which Amanda will answer in her upcoming episodes. How can Amanda help you today? today?